This is the Read Your Bible Podcast, the daily podcast designed to help you understand and apply the scriptures. Nothing will grow your relationship with Jesus Christ more than studying the Bible for yourself. I'm your host, Drew Tankersley, and for the next few moments, I want to invite you to join me as we dive into God's Word together. We'll ask God to help us see what He wants us to see so that we can be who He wants us to be. If you were famous for something, what would it be? Your smile, your looks, your ability to make people laugh, your work ethic, your abilities, your sincerity. There are a lot of things to be remembered for. However, in 1 Kings, we see probably about the worst thing in the world to be known for. And it's a pretty telling indictment of this king's life. But the text also gives us a clue as to why. And it stands as a great reminder to us, well, about how we live and about who we run with. So I'm looking today in verses 25 and 26 of 1 Kings chapter 21. There was no one like Ahab who devoted himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight because his wife Jezebel incited him. He committed the most detestable acts by following idols as the Amorites had, whom the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. Now, if you're going to be known for something, I mean, at least let it be good. Ahab was the antithesis of this statement. He was renowned for his evil deeds. He was someone who literally devoted himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight. It's almost like he found out what would make the Lord angry and did that on purpose. The reason for this was that, as the text says, Jezebel, his wife, incited him. This chapter bears this out in one of the most despicable scenes in Ahab's life. We learn that the wicked king envies the vineyard of a man named Naboth, whose vineyards backed up to his palace there in Jezreel. Now Ahab, who has no regard for the family line or generational heritage, seeks to lure the vineyard from Naboth despite the righteous man's best intentions. Seeking to bribe the man with another vineyard and a reasonable price, Ahab is completely ignoring the land rights of the Jewish people. This is very, very important to them. The nation had strict laws on the land and its forefathers. Remember, this was their portion of God's heritage and the physical manifestation of the promise given to their forefather Abraham. God's coming to Abraham in the first place, all the way back in Genesis 12, was always rooted in raising up a nation and giving them a land that God would show him. This land would be God's destination in mind for his people when he redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. This land was forfeited when the nation chose to choose fear over faith at the banks of the Jordan thereby dooming an entire generation to watch their corpses fall in the wilderness because they refused to trust God to give them this land. This region was God's promised land. It was their homeland, the place to which God had called them. It was the land that was fought for in the book of Joshua. This land was was just more than a good patch of soil in which to grow crops and vineyards. Their story was intricately woven into the sinews of this land. 
The land was their inheritance. It was their personal connection to God's bigger story and their identity as a people. So for Naboth just to give up this land that had been in their uh, family for centuries would have been absolutely ludicrous. I mean, it was, this land was their forefather's land, their grandfather's land, over and over and over again. Every seven years during the year of Jubilee, the land would be restored back to the original owners by right and title. This proposition to give up this land was about so much more than just a profitable vineyard. All of this explains why Naboth was so insistent on keeping it. But it also highlights how out of touch Ahab was with God's plans for his lands. All Ahab knew was that he wanted it no matter whose it was. So when Naboth refuses to give it to him, the king begins to sulk and pout. It is at this moment that the queen Jezebel gets involved. Upon her entrance into the storyline, the evil stoops to a new low. Remember, Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. Now, God expressly forbade this type of political marriage. From the very beginning, God had warned the people all the way back in Deuteronomy of the dangers of intermarriage with the other people of the land. They were supposed to wipe them out, not marry them. Doing this was a recipe for disaster because, as we've seen, they would turn Israel's heart away from God. Solomon was the most visible example of this destruction. Nonetheless, Ahab chooses to marry Jezebel, who's no stranger to the absolute decrees of the Phoenician peoples. That she's ashamed of her husband's quarrel with himself. He wants the vineyard, but he stops short of demanding it be surrendered to him, presumably because he, at least initially, cares about the will of the people. But Jezebel has no regard for God's law, no regard for the will of the people, and no regard for the customs of the land. She's willing to do whatever she has to do, lie, steal, cheat, destroy, even kill to get what she wants. We should expect nothing less from a pagan queen, given her disregard for God. Now her evil ways now drag Ahab along with her as he is silently complicit to Jezebel's heinous plot. They call a feast, they pay two men to lie against Naboth, saying that he blasphemed God, something that Ahab himself was actually guilty of, and instead they drag the innocent man outside the palace and stone the man to death. Jezebel then takes the opportunity to seize the man's vineyard, and Ahab complies with her commands. Commentator Paul House writes, he dutifully followed her orders, having seen how to be the kind of king that Jezebel respected. Ahab and his queen have now added murder, stealing, and oppression to their already serious religious sins. Elijah, at the end of the chapter, confronts the king for his sin and promptly forecasts the king and his evil queen's untimely death. God will rip the kingdom from this tandem of evil. Remarkably, the one redeeming quality of this chapter is that after this, Ahab somehow kind of repents, thereby delaying God's judgment until after his death. It's astounding here to consider the grace of God extended to this evil king, given his contrition. God's grace would come alive amid the backdrop of such evil, injustice, jealousy, rage, murder, and seizure of this land. 
Now, the obvious application here is the corruption of this king, right? I mean, as the old, as the old song says, you can't always get what you want. Ahab should have remembered that. We all have things that we desire, but what lengths are we willing to go to to get what we cannot have? We need to be careful with the selfishness that demands that we pursue what we desire at all costs. We also need to remember that bad company corrupts good morals. No matter how much you feel close to God, mark it down. The people you affiliate with will cause you to drift on your heading of holiness. They will affect you more than you realize. Jezebel's pragmatic evil plunged Ahab into complicity and destruction. And we have to remember that God's instructions regarding who we let into our inner circle of our influence is intentional. He knows your friend's influence who you become. I have an evangelist friend who used to always tell me, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. I think the story of Jezebel and Ahab is a cautionary tale that should cause us to reflect on who it is we have in our inner circle, because they will affect us and the choices we make. Are they living lives consistent with God and what he says in his word? Do they push us to more significant growth in godliness? Do they challenge us and hold us accountable for being who God wants us to be? Or do they move us in the opposite direction? The question is worth our consideration today. Who's in your inner circle? Are they helping you grow in your faith? Are they pulling you from it? Consequently, this is why discipleship is so critically important. Because when you align yourself with people who will on purpose call you out and push you towards your spiritual growth, you're putting reinforcements in place to keep you from making the same dumb decisions that Ahab did. We should all be thankful, finally, for the grace of God that stays judgment on our sin. God's long-suffering to us is just as gracious as it was to Ahab. It should cause us to thank him and worship him. It should infect the way we live. It should cause our hearts to live by the precepts of a God who shows us such unending grace. So Father, help us today to remember your word and to trust what you say about how our friends affect our lives. May we intentionally select influences that push us toward you. Help us to realize the importance of godly community in life groups and discipleship groups that champion your work in our lives and help us to make decisions consistent with that calling. Guard us against the influences that distract or detract from our growth in godliness. Most of all, thank you for the grace that redeems our brokenness and receives us back when we walk in repentance. In your name, amen. Thanks for joining us today for the Read Your Bible podcast. For show notes to today's episode, please visit readyourbible.info. While you're there, you can listen to past episodes as well as access a host of additional resources designed to help you grow in your faith. It's all there for you at readyourbible.info. That's readyourbible.info. For more information about South Seminole Baptist Church, just go to southseminole.com. Join us again tomorrow as together we help you learn to read your Bible.